If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, we're looking at the last of the Ten Commandments. We'll be in verse 17. And then uh, I think we have uh, a few weeks that we'll talk about uh, Christmas. And then we're going to do ten weeks on the nine fruit of the Spirit. We're not creating another one. There'll be one kind of overview. And then we're going to go to the book of Acts. So that's kind of where we're going to be in the next period of time. Today, Exodus 20, verse 17. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we have much to be grateful for. Many of us have enjoyed friends or family, have enjoyed meals and time off or Thanksgiving. Many are traveling even now. We ask for your mercies upon them. Father, as we talk about the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. It's so contemporary to where we live and the temptations that are all around us. And we pray that we would learn to keep our eyes on you, the creator, preeminently over your creation. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, coveting, I think, is a sin that perhaps all of us from time to time struggle with. It's so easy to see what someone else has and covet, pine after. Let me go ahead and define coveting for us. It comes from a Hebrew word, tamad. It's a hankering after, a craving for even a secret jealousy of wanting what belongs to another and we want it for ourselves. It's so easy in this world. Maybe you are on Facebook and you see the pictures of a friend on vacation and you compare that to your big summer vacation in Medford (laughs) and it doesn't compare well. Or maybe you're single and you covet your married friends. Or maybe you're married and you covet a little bit. I didn't mean that disrespectfully. I meant the freedom that you have as a single person. I'm already in trouble, I'm three minutes into the message. Moving on. Maybe you see a family photo. There's a lot of Thanksgiving photos out there, right? And it kind of looks like John Boy, right? It's not like your family. Yours is more like the Munsters. And it doesn't feel very good. Oh, how did that get in there? I don't know. Or maybe for me, I don't covet a lot in terms of houses, but... You get me next to a six-speed black Wrangler with extra-wide mutter tires, a bikini top, and man, I begin to salivate. We all covet something different. But it's wanting more of the creation and less of the creator. I think of a book. It's a book that sold 17 million copies in the United States. It was released in 2000. 
I'm willing to bet a lot of you read the book. And I think secretly, the book violates the 10th commandment. I think this book encourages us to covet what we do not need and we do not have. The book is the prayer of Jabez. It's a very popular book. Did you notice the first line in the book in the preface? The very first line says this, Dear reader, I want to teach you a prayer, a daring prayer that God always answers. And I want to say no. No. The whole premise of the book is that you're learning a daring prayer that God always answers. There is no prayer that God always answers that has to do with self. Absolutely none. So the premise of the book is wrong. The understanding of the book is also wrong. He takes us to 1 Chronicles 4, 9 and 10, which is a genealogy. And in the middle of the genealogy, you have two historical statements. Let me read it to us. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez. Don't move too quickly. The word Jabez means pain. It's a Hebrew word that's an alliteration for the word pain. We hear Jabez as J-A-B-E-Z, actually a Hebrew word, study, smith, whatever, or a scholar would say, oh, mom named you Mr. Pain? That's what it is. His mother named him Jabez, Pain, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cries out to the God of Israel, oh, that you will bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. 15 times in the book, we are told to ask God to enlarge our territory. And yet we don't even understand the context. The context is a young man who was born with pain, causing his mother pain, and he lives with pain, and he's asking God to increase his territory, essentially allow me to be able to earn a living that's what he's asking God to do. It's not somebody who's healthy. It's not somebody who's wealthy. It's not somebody who already has territory asking God to increase the territory. That isn't at all what the text is about. It's a man who is born in pain, causing pain, living in pain, asking God to increase his territory, to give him ability that he might work. And I think if this is a prayer that God always answers, why didn't Paul pray it? In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul prayed three times for God to remove the thorn in the flesh. And what did God respond? My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, no. Not yes. No. I'm not going to remove it from you. What about Job? I realize he's patriarchal period, so he's predating First Chronicles, but 
Had he known the prayer of Jabez, would he have had such a difficult time in the midst of the middle of the book? I think the answer is it wouldn't have made a difference. God had the book of Job to teach us to keep our eyes on the creator, not on the creation. And that sometimes God says no, even to his most cherished of servants. And yet we are not to curse God and die. We are to love God. We are to honor God. We are to worship God even in the midst of suffering. That's what the book of Job teaches us. The third problem with the prayer of Jabez is it doesn't understand genre. Genre is style of literature. The prayer of Jabez is historical literature. Historical literature tells us what happened in a one-time event. When we get to the book of Acts, it's historical literature. I'm going to have to be especially careful with application in the book of Acts. Because just because something happened once doesn't mean that God prescriptively means it will always happen. That's epistolary literature. Actually, the way to interpret historical literature is to look at it in light of epistolary literature and read it back into the text, which is what we will do. But the prayer of Jabez doesn't do that. It reads a one-time event of something that happened, a man in pain who caused pain, who's living in pain, asking God to give him the ability to provide for himself and 15 times we were told in the book, go ahead and pray that prayer, whether you're in pain or not, and expect that God will say yes, because God always says yes to this bold prayer. That is not true. But what it did is it subtly taught us to pray not as the Bible would have us pray, confessing our sin, being filled with adoration for who God is, being filled with thanksgiving, and finally supplicate and ask. It had us move the supplication to the top because God always answers the prayer of Jabez. Now, I have no doubt that the author meant well. I have no doubt that the 17 million people who read it really had God-centered intentions. But I use the illustration because it's very easy to couch our desires in spiritual sounding language. If I only had a bigger house, I would then entertain for the Lord. If I only had a better job and I could earn more money in a, a shorter amount of time, then I'd have more hours to serve. It's very easy to couch our desires in spiritual sounding language and violate the 10th commandment. What is the 10th commandment? Let me read it out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. I think this is an incredibly contemporary text. We need to update some of the illustrations from this time period to our time period. I doubt over Thanksgiving, 
any one of us coveted our neighbor's donkey. Probably didn't happen. But we might have coveted our neighbor's house or the food on somebody else's table. We might have coveted some of the pictures that we saw on Facebook. Yesterday, uh, when we got back from visiting family in Minneapolis, we went and cut down a couple trees. And my daughter, who I love more than life itself, violated my principle and put a picture of my wife and I on Facebook. Shame on her. But the picture is of Betty Ann and myself with our two grandies. It is like a John Boy picture. <laughs> and it was the 13th one taken. Because we're all trying to get four people to smile at once. Isn't that the way Facebook works? I didn't give you the other 12. My daughter didn't give you those, right? We pick the one that looks the best. Why? Because we want to put our best foot forward. And then you look at the picture and you say, oh, man, their grandkids are always so happy. And ours are, but yours are not. <laughs> we do this to one another on Facebook. I think of the words of a pastor. He wrote this 22 years ago. This is out of Christianity Today. He said, I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. How do I get involved in the cult of the next thing? It's not that I step out and I say, man, I just got to have one more thing. It's that I'm not fighting against it. And there's drift towards always needing something faster, better, prettier, newer, stronger, bigger, shinier. There's drift. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More, you deserve it. New, faster, cleaner, brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it. Instant credit, no down payment, deferred payment, no interest for 12 months. It has its own preachers and pitch women and men. It has its own shrines and chapels, malls, superstores. I added the next one, internet shopping. It has its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing's central message proclaims crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. The cult of the next thing is when I don't find my satisfaction in the creator, but rather I find it in the creation. I think things are morally neutral. I'm not a Buddhist. A Buddhist believes that material things are wrong. I'm a Christian. A Christian believes that the creator comes before the creation. There's a difference between the two. It's not that material things are wrong. If we keep them in perspective, if we aren't always pining after and hankering after things, I want to hanker after the Lord and use the creation 
that he gives. I think of Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, either love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. No one can serve both God and money. I believe that the reason God requires me to give the first fruits of my income to him is not to keep the lights on. I think he requires me to give the first fruits of my income to him because in doing so, I remind myself what is preeminent in my life. It's the creator rather than self. It's the creator rather than creation. And so God requires that of me. I want to avoid, you want to avoid the cult of the next thing. And we do this, you know, desiring things in the most spiritual of languages. I think of Eve and Adam. What was the first known created sin? It was actually the sin of covetousness, right? They didn't want to be just like God in terms of imitating God. They wanted to be God. Isn't that the first created human sin? What was the first sin of the angelic world? Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, they wanted to be God. They wanted what God did not intend for them to have. They wanted that for self. Listen to Genesis 3, 1 to 5. This is the fall of man. This is our first sin. Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That was a lie. God never said that. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the free fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. We have no evidence that God said that. She added to it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so she eats the fruit. She is duped. But Adam is not. Adam brazenly knows that he is disobeying God. He is pursuing what God told him not to have. He is brazenly coveting the Godhead for himself, which is why we read in Romans 5, 12, that it is through Adam, the first Adam, that you and I have original sin, that we are tainted with sin, and we need the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, who paid the penalty of sin, which is death. On the third day, he rose again, conquering death, that if by faith you and I would believe in Jesus and truly ask him to forgive us of our sin, we would be given eternal life. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to defeat the sin of covetousness, which is in all of us. And how do Adam and Eve couch it? Their sin, their fallenness, oh, they just want to be like God. Actually, they want to be God. They couched it in spiritual-sounding language. We need to be careful when we talk to ourselves and others. Are we using spiritual language actually to get what we want, to be self-serving rather than God-serving? That was Adam. That was Eve. That was also Frederick the Great, or at least it was his secretary. Some of you might know Frederick the Great. He was the king of Prussia. 
1740 to 1786. If you want to read a very colorful historical figure, Frederick is your man. Frederick is very colorful. So he rules over Prussia, which will become Germany in 1871. And Frederick sees some land that is not his. He covets it. He wants it. And so he says to his secretary, write a proclamation to all my people because I need an army. I need to conscript people and I need money. We need to build up the treasury. And so the secretary begins to read the proclamation he writes. And he says, in the providence of God. And Frederick stops him. He says, don't write that. That's an utter lie. Just tell the truth. Frederick wants more land. That's the truth. I want more land. He's unwilling at least to couch it in spiritual language. But it's common that we do. The text says, just be satisfied. A theology of contentment is what we need. Let's look at the specifics. Do not covet your neighbor's house. So if you were an individual that covets houses, a lot of you aren't, some of you are, then I would not go through the parade of homes. Because all you're going to do is feed your covetousness. If that isn't your sin, but you're interested, go enjoy yourself. But if your sin is coveting the next house and the next house and you're never satisfied, why would you go to the parade of homes? Why? You're just placing yourself in an area of weakness. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. That happens all the time, doesn't it? Voyeurism. Matthew said if we look lustfully at a woman, we've already committed adultery in our heart. Pornography is coveting someone else's wife or at least what you do not own. Adultery. It flows out of a disobedience of the 10th commandment, coveting what is not ours, what is not our right. Do not covet one's neighbor's servants. What would that mean? Well, maybe in the 20th century, in the 21st century, it might be coveting like someone who can cheat and afford to have someone clean their house. May your tribe increase. I wish my, that was part of my tribe. Or maybe it's coveting someone who has someone cutting your lawn, or maybe it's coveting someone who can pay to go out to eat and thereby lowering one's work. None of those are wrong. They're all fine, unless that's not our life and we're coveting somebody who has it. We shouldn't covet the life of another. We've taken our eyes off of the creator and put it on the creation, and we've elevated the creation above, and we're hankering after what God does not at this moment intend for us to have. Do not covet your neighbor's ox or donkey or anything belonging to one's neighbor. This is talking about transportation. Until very recently, I would say nobody has ever coveted my car. Not once. In fact, uh, my little, now she's four, Ray Ray, I think her parents are in on this. But every time she comes in, I have a 1998 truck that has more rust than it does paint. And a number of years ago, I bought it for $400. Well, actually, $350. I'm exaggerating a little bit. So you can imagine what it looks like. And my little four-year-old, her latest is she comes in and she says, your truck, Popo, is nasty. <laughs> so 
So nobody's really ever coveted my vehicles. But that changed this summer. For the first time in July, I own a vehicle in which I do not roll the window up. I got a button, zoop, zoop, living large. In fact, I got all sorts of buttons. I don't know what half of them mean. Uh, I was showing my wife, I have this little sun thing and I have skin cancer, so I don't do it. And so we were driving to Minneapolis. <laughs> I was stupid. I said, hey, honey, you want to see the sunroof? And I opened it and I couldn't close it. <laughs> it was really warm going on Thanksgiving with the sunroof. Took me a while to close it. Finally, she said, just drive. I'll take care of it. So it's got all these buttons. How did I get this car? Well, my mom gave it to me, actually. My mom gave me her Lincoln from 2015. It's got all these buttons. I don't know what any of them do. I don't know why you would want all these buttons, but I've got them, and you're probably coveting. So I have a friend who, when he learned that my mom gave me a 2015 Lincoln with 28,000 miles on it, by the way. Uh, now you're coveting. My friend asked me if my mom is adopting. And I looked at him and said, she can do better than you. Um, I don't think she's adopting. But the point is, all of us own something that is covet worthy. All of us want something that we can pine after. Remember the cult of the next thing we slide into. It doesn't just happen, we allow ourselves, we feed ourselves to want more. There's nothing wrong with things. They're morally neutral. But if we're living for the next thing, and then we're living for the next thing, and we're living for the next thing after that, our eyes are off the creator, and they're on to the creation. Coveting is a hankering after, a craving for, a secret jealousy over, what belongs to another. So what are we to do? Well, the first I've already mentioned twice. We've got to stop feeding the area in which we covet. If you're always playing with your phone and your iPad looking for products that you want in your life, and when you get one, you're always looking for the next, and when you get that one, you're always looking for the next, you and I are feeding that sin. James warns us against that. Let me read from James chapter 1, 14 to 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Did you see what he said? We're tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. If my issue is cars, I shouldn't go from car lot to car lot. If my issue is houses, I don't want to go to the parade of houses. If my issue is stuff, I don't want to constantly go to the stores. I got to stop and keep my eyes on the creator rather than the creation. And that's the second one. I need a theology of contentment. The opposite of the 10th commandment is contentment, and I need a theology of it. I think what happens is this. I look around and I see somebody who has more than me or better than me or shinier than me or bigger than me or newer than me. 
And I think, you know what, God? I think they're not even a believer. What are you doing, God? I don't think I'm alone. In fact, Asaph thought that. You know who Asaph is? He's one of the authors of the Psalms. Some of the Psalms were written by David, some by Solomon, some by Asaph. He's a worship pastor. He's like Jeff before Jeff. Weiss, that is. Asaph writes this in Psalm 73, two to four. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's looking around and he's saying, Lord, that unbeliever has a better job. That unbeliever has a better house. That unbeliever has a better car. That I don't get it, Lord. What are you doing? And I think what God would say is this. First, I've got my eyes on the creation rather than the creator. Second, I don't really know somebody's life. A bunch of pictures or a bunch of possessions doesn't really tell me someone's life. But third, I think the Lord would say, Jeff, you're judging too early. A judgment is coming. Evaluate after. After the judgment, when certain believers get even more rewards because of how faithful they are, and some less than and unbelievers are cast into a lake of fire forever and ever. Evaluate later, Jeff. You're evaluating too early. Well, Asaph got it together, and in verse 25, he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. So he's looking around, he's seeing what other people have, he's lusting after it, he's desiring it, and then he says, oh, what am I doing? I've done it again. I'm looking at the creation, I'm not looking at the creator, I'm thinking about the here and now, I'm not thinking about the afterlife. Lord, I'm gonna focus on you. Whom have I but you? Paul said the same thing. Let me read from Philippians 4, 11 and 12. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content we often don't realize Paul was in prison multiple times, but he was also a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, and he studied under Gamaliel, which tells me he came from a, man, a family with a lot of money. Paul is rich. At least he was at one point in his life. So when he says, I know what it's like to have little, I know what it's like to have a lot, he really does. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's just not true that the rich pine after more than the poor. Finances has almost nothing to do with it. It's a hard issue. It's not what we own. It's who owns us. Do our possessions own us or does God own us? He said, I've learned the secret. And then he goes on to tell us the secret is Christ who strengthens me. Where are our eyes? We need a theology of contentment and we need to live it out. And finally, I would say this. If I could master the first four commandments of the 10, I won't even need to worry about the 10th. I really just need to master the first four and then I can... I can ignore the 10th because I'll have that as well. Think of the first four. You shall have no other guy beside me. You shall not commit idolatry. 
We live in the cult of the next thing. And if I could make God my priority, if I could keep my eyes on the creator rather than on the creation, I wouldn't need to worry about covetousness. What's the third commandment? Uh, Do not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. You say, what does that have to do with covetousness? Well, it's less a command against swearing. It might be a little bit that. But actually, there's 300 names of God, and they represent his characteristics, his attributes. So when I'm commanded not to take the Lord thy God's name in vain, the opposite of that is I'm commanded to understand who God is, to study God, to know his attributes, to get to know this God. And if I would get to know this God, I would not put someone before him. I would not have idolatry. What's the fourth commandment? Keep the Sabbat holy, Kadosh. God says you have six days to earn a living. But the seventh day, that's mine. Keep it holy. Make me the priority. If I would not keep someone in front of God, if I would not commit idolatry, if I would get to know the attributes of God, and if I would keep the Sabbath holy, Kadosh, set apart, set aside for God, I would not need to worry about a heart of covetousness. And so I want to focus on those first four. And when I focus on those first four, I think the other six fall into play. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the Ten Commandments. I thank you for what they teach me, what they remind me of. We're thankful for the work that your Spirit has already done in our lives, and yet we know that there's still more work to be done. Father, we desire to serve you, to honor you, to worship you. Help us to live for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.